Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 43 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today, I'm joined once again by Angela Pfeiffer. She is SIBO guru and she has a thriving clinical practice for the last 11 years, working clinically as a licensed certified nutritionist. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in nutrition science from Bastyr University, where she also taught as adjunct faculty. She was trained in functional medicine, even before the term functional medicine became a buzzword. Specialising from the start in functional gut disorders, for the past four years, her practice has focused solely on SIBO. As the SIBO guru, instead of chasing symptoms, she helps her patients get to the root of their illness. Today, we talk all about the fear that we can experience when it comes to food. And this podcast comes to you from our live recording in Seattle. It was wonderful to meet uh, some of the Healthy Gut podcast listeners at that event. And today we talk around, you know, why we become really nervous and fearful around food, how it can actually be a really common part of a SIBO journey and what we can do to overcome it. Now, talking about food, I wanted to let you know that the SIBO cookbooks that I have written are now available to order for US and Canadian customers for local delivery. So no longer do you need to pay postage coming from Australia where the books were coming from. Uh, They're distributed from the States. The other good news is that I have updated the books so that they use US measurements and ingredient names and temperatures. So no longer do you have to worry what on earth I'm talking about when I list my Australian ingredients. For anybody wanting the Australian editions, they're still available and they are dispatched from Australia. And the other exciting news is that I am working on converting the cookbooks so that they will be suitable for the UK market. I lived in the UK for seven years. It's only fitting that I do a UK edition as well. And not to uh, be outdone with cookbooks some very exciting news all around food is that I will be shortly launching a SIBO snack range and I'll be collaborating with another company to give you a ready-made meal service that's suitable for SIBO diet. I am so excited to be able to bring these solutions to you. It really will help alleviate some of that nervousness and fear around food. But I want to know what you want. So I've got a really short survey that I'm asking people to fill out. It just lets me know that I'm in going in the right direction with making sure that I give you the dietary requirements you need in the snacks and also the ready-made meals. So head to thehealthygut.co forward slash food fears, which is the link for today's show. And on the page, you will see a link for the survey. So make sure you go fill that out. I look forward to seeing your response. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Angela Pfeiffer. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Angela Pfeiffer. It's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It has been some months it's been many months since we last did our um, Healthy Gut 
podcast interview. So it's great that today we're going to be talking all about the SIBO diets and what can happen to us when we start to go into analysis, paralysis and fear. Yes. So let's start off with talking about the SIBO diets. Like what are they and what should we be following? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a loaded question. Um, So when we look at any of the diets that have been constructed, if we will say that word, um, created uh, or launched to address functional gut disorders, all of them manage or alter carbohydrates in some way. So if we look at the GAPS diet, if we look at the SCD diet, if we look at the FODMAPS diet, all of them alter carbohydrates and they have very strict rules about what's in and what's out. And they work beautifully for some people, not as much for others. We have to really figure out what are the symptoms, what, what's the condition, how, you know, what is the person eating and uh, what are they experiencing when they eat X, Y, and Z, and then try to figure out where we might use one of these diets to give them a regroup and maybe even give their gut a rest from some of these symptoms. Uh, when we look at the SIBO diet um, and, and what to eat when you have SIBO um, for you know, the, the first part of this really coming on to the national stage, I think most people have been using the FODMAP diet. Um, and the FODMAP diet was never created for SIBO. It was created for IBS. Um, it came out of the Menashe University. Um, and, oh gosh, I just forgot her name. Who, it, she's the- Dr. Sue Shepherd. Thank you very yeah. much. Yes, as, as you are from Australia, you have to know that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they created that for IBS and it has great studies behind it. It works beautifully and it's on the premise that there's fermentable compounds within foods that will cause uh, distress and IBS symptoms by really creating a load of um, fermentation happening in the small intestine, which is gonna draw water into the small intestine and then also can cause some fermentation and gas and give people those IBS symptoms that people so classically have and the bloating and gas and cramping and sometimes loose stool, sometimes uh, constipation. It really can go either way or both. And so when we start to look at SIBO, it made a lot of sense when we're trying to address the fermentation that's happening with SIBO that we would gravitate towards a diet like that. And I found clinically it's probably the best diet out there to regroup to. Um, and so that's where FODMAPs kind of came into uh, play, if you will, with SIBO. And then we have the lovely Allison C. Becker, Dr. Allison C. Becker, and she has created the SIBO-specific diet, and it's a combination of the FODMAPs diet and the SCD diet. Um, and it, so it goes a bit further to pull polysaccharides um, and um, other triggering ferment, uh, fermentable compounds that would be within foods. Um, and so that's, that's the field that we have to choose from. Um, you could also throw in there the elemental diet, um, if you will, as a diet that's being kicked around for SIBO as well. And that's used um, a lot within treatment of SIBO to give the gut a rest. Um, and really when we look at that, that's going to knock all organisms down, not really cherry picking SIBO specifically, but all organisms down. But it can be a regroup and a reset for someone that has a lot of distress, um, you know, gastrointestinal distress and symptom set that they need to get a little bit of a handle on. Um, so that's what we have to really choose from. Um, I'd say that um, probably most people work, you know, within the FODMAP realm of some sort. And I'd say when, when you have SIBO, you have you, you have to alter carbohydrates in some way. And mo- a lot of people, before they even get the diagnosis, are starting to self-limit things that hurt them, that they connect with, that they don't feel well eating. So um, usually even when I start to work with somebody, they've already started to limit a few things. They realize garlic and onion don't sit well. They realize apple or pear don't sit well. And so they're, they're kind of going along that line already. And so, yeah. And that was very much the situation for me whereby I was noticing that onion and garlic had started to become problematic despite my love of onion and garlic, particularly garlic. Um, Gluten had been really problematic for many years. Legumes and pulses, so beans and lentils and those types of things were starting to become really painful every time I ate them. Quinoa wasn't great for me anymore. Rice I was tending away from. So without even really consciously doing it, I was starting to just pull right back from foods. And I remember saying to a friend, I feel like every year I get older, the foods I eat shrink. And I didn't realise that most of that reason was due to SIBO. Mm -hmm. 
that I just had this dysbiosis in my gut, this imbalance in my gut, and that the SIBO was causing the majority of those symptoms. Common thing that I think happens with people when they get their SIBO diagnosis is they go into analysis paralysis, as I call it, where we go crazy on Dr. Google, we go looking for research, (laughs) we find the diets or we're told to follow a diet and then we try to compare everything. And I do see that with the diets that that people are looking at, low FODMAP, the SIBO-specific food guide, the SCD diet. They might also be using the biphasic, biphasic diet. Yeah, I didn't mention that one, but yes, definitely um, the biphasic. Which I well. have based my cookbooks mm-hmm. on and what I followed myself. Um, they might also be looking at the GAPS diet and, and they might also be looking at the fast track diet. And not everything matches up. No. So what's your advice to somebody listening who is perhaps in that zone and they've kind of got this chart of foods of where they sit. Um, How much should we be following every single diet out there or should we just be picking one and and trying to then work from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what I would say is that when you get your SIBO diagnosis, when we're looking at the diet, you don't immediately have to adhere to any one specific diet not to use the word specific there, but you don't have to adhere to a diet. You ha- I mean, really, the, the, the <laughs> we, we've talked about this so much today. I'm so passionate about this. The diet doesn't treat SIBO. The diet doesn't starve the bugs out. And the more a person tries to chase that, thinking that anytime they eat a food, if they have a reaction that those organisms are growing, like they're in a Petri dish and they just see them bubble up and get bigger, That's not what's happening in our gut. You've eaten too much of a fermentable load. When that passes by the SIBO organisms, they're going to ferment, they're going to off-gas. You're going to feel whatever symptom set you get from that, but it doesn't mean SIBO is getting growing in numbers. And I think that's where people really start to strip away food after food after food. And then, you know, they're down to 12 foods. They're going to start reacting to those foods at some point. It's going to happen. They've got too little nutrition coming in. Too too many uh, deficiencies are going to happen. And if the system is really starting to get that hypersensitive within the whole gut as a whole, you're going to start to react immune-wise to foods because you're constantly eating the same foods in a gut that's already a bit disordered. So first and foremost, I'd say usually people have altered carbohydrates self-limited a little bit from the start. They realize like you did, quinoa wasn't sitting well. You're just gravitating away from it. Rice isn't sitting well. At the point you get a SIBO diagnosis, that doesn't mean you have to scrap everything you're doing and go eat of this perfect little grid of a plan because this is what you have to do to fix this. The only time that people really need to regroup on one of those diets is if symptoms are all over the place and they have no idea what's going on just no idea. And sometimes SIBO can come on that strongly. And I I appreciate very much that someone might need a regroup. They don't know which way is up. Then I think doing something like the FODMAP plan first is probably a good plan. Um, Then we can start to say, if, you know, if maybe it's more methane higher up in the small intestine, maybe they need to dip into something like the SIBO specific or the biphasic, which is, we didn't talk about what it is, but basically it uses the SIBO specific, which is the combination FODMAP and SCD, and lays it out in a two-phase plan. And so kind of gives some instructions on how to use the SIBO specific diet. And it works beautifully for people. So again, this is when symptoms seem to, you know, people really need a bit more direction and everything they were eating is, is causing a symptom set, you know, a reaction for them. So, you know, again, you, we look at the diet to eat as, as much of a variety as the person can handle, but to address symptoms, to help calm those down, to work on how to better nourish a person, to address some of those IBS symptoms. So as they're going through this, We can figure out what's the underlying trigger, how do we address or reinstate that, and how do we treat this properly. And treating it doesn't mean starving yourself. We can't starve ourselves because I I see so many people stuck on a few foods month after month after year after year, and they're so stuck at that point. And yes, there's hope. It's going to take a while to kind of peel that back, but they keep feeling like if if I eat this food and react, SIBO is getting worse and it's, it's doesn't feel good 
I, my heart goes out to them. It doesn't feel good. Um, if there's any kind of flare that happens, it's probably going to take multiple hours to work past that. It's going to take at least three days to feel like you're God on the other side of it. And you might react to some foods that used to be safe during that period of time. That's why it gets so scary because it feels like, I mean, it's very debilitating sometimes and it feels like, oh my gosh, now I'm reacting to everything else. Um, so I know it's, this isn't easy. I appreciate that. But we really have to look at this and stop telling people to limit their diet so much because they're, they're going to dip nutritionally. They're going to, anemia issues pop up. You, you get, you know, malnourishment pop up. The endurance starts to shift. And you already have a group with SIBO, which is a secondary condition. It's not a primary condition. So the system is in disarray to begin with. And then we're going to completely deplete it nutritionally and think that it's going to heal something as complex as the gut. And I don't think that we can go there and keep going there for people. So the more variety, the better. I know that's not easy for a lot of people to hear because they feel very stuck on, on a plan. But I think if, if at least at this point we can ha get this message out and say to anybody new with SIBO, there's, we have to let go of that fear of food. Food is not going to make this worse in terms of SIBO getting worse and worse and worse. You've got to figure out the underlying pieces, eat as much variety as you can. And if a food is not bothering you, don't pull it. It's not because you ate potato that SIBO didn't go away. You didn't figure out the underlying issues and you didn't figure out how to treat this properly. And if you've treated and treated and treated and it's not recovering, we got to step back and look at the diagnosis. Something else is going on that's getting in the way or preventing of that and we can't keep going on the hamster wheel and thinking that it's going to be different this time. You know, we really need to take a step back and look at the, the patient uh, holistically, you know, with the full set here. I think that's uh, great advice to somebody who's listening who perhaps is on the hamster wheel and is going through round after round of treatment um, because with every round you have that hope that this is the round, this is the treatment that is going to work and when it doesn't work it's incredibly deflating. Of course. Very hard psychologically to deal with that emotional um, roller coaster. In um, I have a really wonderful program now, my SIBO coaching program, where I coach and mentor people with SIBO on the lifestyle aspects. And we have special guest presenters coming in. And Dr. Alison Seebecker was in our um, webinar just recently. And what was wonderful uh, was she was saying to my coaching program clients, use any one of the guides as a guide. It's not the be and all and end all. If you can eat a food that's not on that guide or even that's in the kind of avoid or restricted column and you don't have a reaction, eat that food. That's wonderful. Food. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, Dr. Alison Seabeck is saying that you're saying that I think it's really important right. we get this message out that um, we that they're just guides to help give suggestions on what foods may or may not work well right. for us. And my example um, with my own story when I was going through SIBO is that pumpkin was is considered pretty safe from the outset and yet I couldn't touch it for six months. And so every month I would try and reintroduce it and I'd have literally a quarter of a cup or an eighth of a cup of pumpkin, which I love, and I would have a terrible flare-up. I'd bloat incredibly and I'd just feel miserable and I'd say okay well pumpkin's still it's not my time with pumpkin yet and then I would um, give it a shot again a month later and still wouldn't work and another month later so I kept persevering with it uh, and finally my body got to a point where it was able to accept pumpkin now pumpkin was in that list from of foods from day one so I had to experiment with with my foods and conversely I didn't know that raw cacao powder should have been or is considered something you should in, in introduce later on because it's um, kind of fibre and um, fermentability, Ugh, say that word first, and, and polysaccharides. <laughs> polysaccharides. Exactly. Um, I was eating it from day one and with absolutely no problems. So – and also I was able to have a bit of onion and garlic from early on without – having any problems so I think the the moral of that is that try test some foods what what is your advice Angela on what people should do when they're just in that zone where they just 
it's it's like it's gripped them. And I've been there when you are just analysing everything that goes into your mouth because you feel sick. You're bloated, you're in pain, you haven't gone to the toilet properly in weeks or you can't stop going to the toilet. And you, and it's very understandable that when you eat a certain food, you have a reaction. So there's that correlation in your brain. Oh, absolutely. How do we, we short-circuit that? How do we move away from that? I think we have to talk ourselves through it when it's happening and realize that we're going to get on the other side of it. I think the learned aversions to food and the fear of food are so real for people. And I get it. Who, who could not? You've, you've been there. You've seen that. Um, it, you know, if we, we are going to gravitate away from things that if we do them, they hurt. I've, I've been, I've worked with people who come to me and say, I just can't eat anything I eat hurts. And we have to really get in and just slowly and methodically work through this. Um, I find that part of it is helping people, um, figure out what foods are going to settle in their system at better, a bit better, making sure that food's cooked thoroughly. And I'm sure some people are going to be listening, saying that they do all this. And I can appreciate that very much. But, you know, you know, to be able to look at that, eating a little bit more frequently and um, getting away from the three meals a day when you're having to overeat at those meals to try to keep your weight stable. So you're eating so much at that meal that you're probably going to react to it is a hard, hard one for people as well. And I'd say that I, I really Oh my gosh, I'd say at least 5% or less of my patients eat the three meals a day. Most of my patients eat more consistently than that because I have so many people with adrenal dysregulation and blood sugar dysregulation and sleep pattern interruptions that they're eating breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, and maybe snack before bedtime. We've got to treat the patient there. So I think if anyone's feeling really stuck there, um, my best advice is to get with somebody that knows FODMAPs in and out, a dietitian, a nutritionist, um, a naturopath, a coach, someone that you can actually work through this with. Because I think, you know, what, what we know, these seven foods don't feel well to me, but someone else can look at those patterns and see something else. I see this. Let's adjust this here and add this here. Let's see how you do. Like we know the group's of foods that if you, are you okay with these? We can probably do these other ones as well and give people ideas versus people feeling like they're just having to pull and pull and pull foods away. So that's really my best approach. Now you and I were talking about Allison saying that she refers a lot of people over to the dietitian down there in Portland for help with this and not a lot of people take her up on that. And yet that's the person that's going to be able to actually help you stabilize your food choices. So you don't feel like you're constantly not knowing which way is up. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, as I'm looking through people's journals, I have people journal, you know, time of day, what and how much they're eating, bloat before and after a meal, hunger across the day, they're tracking symptoms and they're tracking their bowel habits. Um, and when I see all that, I can so easily say, it's not what you just ate. It's what happened over here. I can see the patterns with that. And so we can start to go, you know, okay, this is making more sense. Or, wow, you haven't slept for two nights. You're going to be hyper-reactive to everything. And then they would start pulling foods, being so concerned about that, get all caught up in the anxiety and realize it's the sleep piece that we have to work on. So it's perhaps that, that voice to be able to come in and assess the patterns and say, this makes a lot more sense that this is happening. Let's try this. And then you have somebody to have that springboard with to go back and forth and say, okay, you know, this worked or this isn't, how do we work through this? So it's, I, it's, it's so helpful. Um, you know, I appreciate all the chat rooms, um, and the discussion groups that are there and they can give people really good, um, um, moral support and be there for each other. It's so nice to know that there's some groups like that there, and yet if we line 10 people up or 100 people up with SIBO, not many people are eating the same thing or have the same setup to have SIBO or have SIBO in the same spot in their stomach or how many people have thyroid contributing, how many people have adhesions contributing. And so we really have to look at all the pieces with this. You know, it's not just one thing. Yeah. So I think it's important to be able to look through all of that with somebody and just know that it's going to be different for each person. It is totally. And I think that finding what works for you is important, but also building your dream team. So, and I talk about this quite a lot through the stuff that I do with the healthy gut. 
Yes. Build out a team of people that can support you to regain your health and wellness. Um, For me, that was a naturopath. It was a psychologist. It was a personal trainer. And because I was really confident with food, I was able to then take what I was learning from my naturopath who was very passionate about food and then work with it. But if I wasn't confident with food, I think the first place that I would want to go is, is to work with a nutritionist or a dietitian who has that expertise around nutrition. And I truly believe, I'm very passionate about this, that food is our life source. And if we're down to five foods, we're not getting the best nutrition to live the healthiest life and one of the one of the exercises we do in the SIBO coaching program is what's one food that you can bring in this week because we deal with a lot of food fear a lot of my clients have been sick for five or more years most of them for life chronically chronically unwell they're in a lot of pain and you know those that are down to the five foods that's not nutritionally sound. And so we we have that exercise. And it's amazing when people start bringing new foods in, how liberating that is, because they realise I can have rice. And, and it's sometimes it's simple as, well, not all rice is equal. So I don't do very well with basmati rice, but I can do jasmine rice. And so I said to them, try a rice. What one works better for you? Potato. Some people might do really well with potato. Other people might do better with rice. Some people do better with potato without the skin. Some people can tolerate the skin. It's all experimentation until you get a good sound kind of, you know, the goal is to eat broadly. Well, absolutely. And then I say too, if whenever you're going to trial that, whenever you're going to trial potato or rice, making sure that you're heating it before you're eating it because you will actually, um, if it's cold, it's going to have um, resistant starch in it. And that is a very good (laughs) prebiotic for the gut. Um, So just make sure that you're heating it. And whenever I have people trialing potato, I have them heat it up, no skin, try a tablespoon with a meal that you know is fairly safe and it feels good and just work up from there. But I'd I'd much rather have people have, um, you know, a, a couple couple tablespoons of potato or cubes of potato cooked on a plate and adding it into everything else and pulling something completely because they feel, first of all, like if they eat something starchy, something bad's going to happen. But also if they're reacting to more, I'd just rather have them do a smaller amount there. I think that's an important point you make, which is about volume or quantity. Um, when we're trying a new food, it doesn't mean going and having an entire plate full of it. it. For me, I started out with a tablespoon because I had a really, really, really reactive system. Even when I was doing my herbal antibiotics, I couldn't start at full strength. It took me weeks to build up to the full strength of them. Each time I'd change to a new herb. So I did the same with food and it was slow and it was laborious, but I was able to do, I was able to integrate most foods relatively simply. Now pumpkin was the exception to that rule. Um, So, you know, a tablespoon or a couple of tablespoons or a quarter of a cup can, uh, you know, I believe for me was was a really good starting quantity and, and, and that's kind of what you're saying. Same thing, absolutely. And I do the same thing with herbs with people. Um, let's dip our toe in. Let's try these up. I'd rather ramp somebody up on something. I think the other point to make is that while you're going through SIBO treatment, you still have SIBO. So if you try to, uh, all of a sudden, you know, I ate out or I, uh, you know, ate, ate too much out of sitting, you, you still have SIBO. You know, if your numbers are up in the hundreds, it's going to take a few months to get things settled back down to where you don't have the number of organisms that can actually consume those loads and you feel the fermentation along the way. So we really have to look at that. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's a big, it's a big, um, deal because I think people halfway through treatment will get defeated if they eat something and they react. And I do say if they if they eat off a little bit and they don't react, yes, it is a time to <laughs> say yes, things are getting better, but don't feel like if you've reacted to something that it's, you know, it, it, it's not working. SIBO is still there. We're knocking it down methodically because you can't drain the gut. We have to make sure that we're evoking change and shifting that balance. And that's the focus. Sometimes I would have liked to have drainoid my gut. I know, I know. <laughs> I just wanted it to be gone. <laughs> I, I will talk about what happens when we do have reactions with food in a moment. But 
What I'd like just to talk about now quickly is, do you have foods that you feel are better to start introducing first over others? Like what what do you advise your patients to to go for when they're expanding their diet? Yeah, usually I I share garlic and onion are probably going to be the last thing that we test. I just find across the board, most people are going to react to those and I don't want to defeat them from the start as we're going to be trying things um, and, and um, getting the list. Um, basically, I ask my patient what they're missing. We start there. It's, that's the easiest thing. What do you, what do you miss the most? How can we bring this in? And then we've got different groups within the FODMAPs, you know, the different lovely acronyms and groups. We've got different groups that we can test out. And so we'll just look through and say, okay, that group is first. I don't, I don't think there's a really a perfect methodical way to reintroduce. It's more if they're just really missing these three foods, why would we not start there first and have them have some pleasure to bring those back in? Um, and then garlic and onion are usually last. And I let them know that just like your uh, experience with pumpkin is probably going to be their experience with garlic and onion. I'd say for the most part, you're going to try a little, let's, you know, let's see if it works and uh, move from there. But those are the ones that are a little bit harder. And it would be just like getting on the other side of SIBO treatment and then taking a probiotic that has FOS in it or MOS you that's what garlic and onion are they're very strong prebiotics so it's the same thing and so I think people would be very weary of doing that so we have to be really mindful and slow about how much of the prebiotics those really dense fibrous prebiotics we bring in I think picking something that you're really missing Mm -hmm. and you really really want to have again is a good strategy Mm -hmm. to start now it doesn't mean it will necessarily always work without some form of symptoms but it's nice to taste that food again even if it's a little mouthful. What happens though if we're when we're testing new food and symptoms flare back up Mm -hmm. and perhaps we've had something and we've gone into a really bad flare you know we're bloated so we look nine months pregnant we've got the pain um, we've either gone straight into you know a really bad bout of constipation or diarrhea or you know we might have hives appearing or we've got joint pain or brain fog we feel miserable and then we're really thinking why did I do that I'm such an idiot why did I test it I knew I shouldn't have done it and all of the negative self-chatter happens what do we do then and a SIBO back I think that's where a lot of yeah I've set myself backwards you know and one food and I want to speak to that just really quick eating eating potato just I'm going to pick on potato here eating potato and having a reaction does not mean SIBO is back you know, we have to go back to FODMAPS was created to calm IBS symptoms. So let's just set SIBO aside for a second. This absolutely can just, just, I'm going to say just as it's not easy, be an IBS reaction. And we've got to go a little slower with a few things, but it doesn't mean SIBO completely recurred. SIBO is only going to recur if that motility issue was not addressed. And then something perhaps is going on with the IC valve or adhesions weren't addressed. Like there's other like physical reasons why things would be not progressing as they should. So when we look at a flare, I like to use enteric coated peppermint oil. I like to use gentine and skullcap. Those can be very calming and soothing to the gut to begin with before we start into the challenge phase. My patients have Gas-X on hand and also activated charcoal. So those are a couple of things that they can take. And the other point is we go so slow that it might be like, yeah, that didn't sit well with me, but it's usually not enough to completely set them off. Like we go so slow with that because they are starting out with tablespoons and working slowly up over time to see. And it's usually like, hmm, that's not working as well. Let's back off of that. It's not usually, you know, go eat a plate of this and let's see what happens. So I don't usually get, you know, unless somebody is like, oh my gosh, I'm in an immediate flare. What happened? Well, the family came over and brought pizza. (laughs) And you know, there's going to be a ton of garlic and onions. Like let's just say, the, you know, prebiotics that are in there. And so it's going to be a big flare. And so activated charcoal gas X at that point can help. And knowing it's going to get better, you're going to have to go lay down and rest, warm compress over your tummy, going for a walk if you can to kind of help move it a little bit. Um, but just resting and getting past it, they usually last about three hours because we have to think about transit time, everything moving down and how fast that gas dissipates. Um, and, uh, you're going to start to reset in about three days total. And for the next few meals, you probably are going to have a bigger reaction than you usually would have. So just walking people through that and letting them know that's all going to happen, I think is really important, but 
usually I think gas X can be helpful. Activated charcoal can be a binder of bed and calm things down a little bit. And that can be helpful too. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey guys, I hope you've been enjoying today's episode. Wanted to let you know that it has been brought to you by the SIBO cookbooks. I'm so excited to have this series of cookbooks that are now available to help you on your journey, making cooking for SIBO so much easier and giving you inspiration in the kitchen. Just because we're eating for a special diet doesn't mean it needs to be restricted. The good news is the cookbooks are now available both in Australia and North America. So if you've been wanting to get your hands on an edition that uses Fahrenheit and pounds and ounces and that you're seeing recipes and ingredients using words that you recognize and love, then make sure you head to breathtests.com to grab your copy of the North American edition of the SIBO cookbooks. They are dispatched for American and Canadian customers locally so you only need to pay postage from a local level and for those of you in Australia or the rest of the world make sure you head to thehealthygut.co where you can grab your copy of the Australian cookbook. Now let's get back to the show. What are the common symptoms that you see in your patients when they're starting to reintroduce food? Is it, does it generally seem to be bloating or gas or are there other symptoms that you find that people generally experience? Yeah, it is those, yeah. It's just a, kind of a dis-ease within the gut when they start to introduce things, things aren't sitting as well. I see things affect people a bit systemically, like all of a sudden they'll, you know, I've, 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 I've had the energy to do X, Y, and Z, and now all of a sudden my energy is gone. I think part of it is the emotional defeat that people feel, but we have to remember how much, you know, if they've been feeling well and we're going to start to reintroduce, try, thinking that you're going backwards is very defeating. So we've got the physical response, the emotional response, the physiological response. It's, it's hard. It's hard on people. But yeah, it's, it's a... When, when you're going slow enough, it's usually it's usually bloating. It's usually that their stomach's not feeling too well. Um, it might set their gut off a little bit to where they've got some loose stool. Yeah. I know when I was at that point where I, I followed the biphasic diet by Dr. Narala Jacoby, which I found to be very, very beneficial for me because I am an all or nothing person mm-hmm. and I like lists <laughs> I love lists mm-hmm. and I'm really good if I'm told I can't I can do something or I can't do something I'm not very good with that self-moderation uh, I'm really terrible at it I need to be doing it hundred percent or I'm doing it zero percent there is no middle ground for me what I found when I was coming to the point of reintroduction once I'd cleared my SIBO was enormous fear around new foods. I felt amazing. I felt the best I'd ever felt in my entire life. And the last thing I wanted to do was change that. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to experience any adverse reactions on my with new food coming in. And it took me weeks to actually start even just testing. And it was really my naturopath saying to me, Rebecca, it's time. It's, it's time. time. <laughs> it's time. Yes. And she was really quite uh, forceful in a very lovely, caring, supportive way of saying, just go and do some new food, please. And when I see you in two weeks, I want to hear what you've done. Good. Um, but I think it can be really powerful, particularly if we've been following these diets for some time. For you know, many people, it's been years, and they have not deviated. And that can be a real challenge on how to deviate. And I think that that is, yeah, the fear is real. Yeah. Oh, absolutely it is. We don't want to look at this. And again, you know, we got to kind of talk about how, how much you could, you even need to limit from the start. 
And once you have started to limit how long you can safely stay on that, and I think it can be really hard for people. Um, it is, even from a practitioner point of view, when someone comes to me with six foods, it is hard. It's hard to figure out what are we going to try? How are we going to pull out um, and start to incorporate more foods? And you'll go a couple weeks, everything's going great. Then we'll get a setback. We got to work through it, get them back on track. But that's the nature of being on such a restrictive plan with a functional gut disorder. So I'm sure anyone at home doing this without some professional care it's very difficult. It really, really is. And so we, we do have to, even if you're feeling well, at some point start to expand because we don't want to continue year after year to dampen the microbiota. That's not going to be healthy for you long term. And so even though you feel good then, good, celebrate that, but we've got to move past that a bit too. Yeah. With regards to symptoms, how do we know and I know that when you're working with your patients, you're going really slow and steady, but for somebody at home who perhaps doesn't have that nutritional support, is there a point at which we go, okay, these symptoms aren't just a case of it's a new food and we haven't eaten it for five years. Instead, it's okay, the system really isn't coping. Are there, are there some telltale signs that people should look for when it comes to just symptom management with new food introduction? Yeah, I look for anything with, uh, that's inflammation related. So if there's any kind of, you know, eczema, psoriasis being flared and not, not that it would be new, but if somebody already has that joint pain, hives, and any anything like that that would have any kind of inflammation involved, um, if it's just more digestive distress, a little bit of bloating, cramping, bubbly, loose stool, that through immune constipation for a couple of days. Um, it's, it's probably a bit more food related, but again, it's, we, ha- we kind of have to step back to what else was new. How'd you sleep the night before? What else happened during the day? Was work really stressful for women? Is your cycle starting? Because that's going to load the detox pathways a bit for someone that's already feeling a bit imbalanced in terms of the functional gut disorder. Then we can see that People can be a bit more, women can be a bit more hypersensitive to foods at that period of time too, because there's a more of a load on the system. So we, we got, we have to just assess all of it together. And then again, was it an overwhelming response? Let's pull it for a few days and try it again, you know, and usually I'll give it a couple of, couple of tries. And if there's a guess, we're going to try it again <laughs> for sure. And then, you know, wait a month and try it again is what I say. I have a food and mood diary, which is linked into the show notes of this podcast, which is a really great way to just record Mm -hmm. what you're eating and Mm -hmm. how you're feeling. And what I have found for many people is that we've become so accustomed to the symptoms, we've actually stopped really feeling them. Mm -hmm. And we can also expect them to come. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to talk to you just around whether you see that in your practice with our psychology, our mind leading us into symptoms perhaps. I don't want to say that they're not real because it feels very real at the time. It's very real for you. But when you tell yourself you're going to have a reaction, you're way more likely to have a reaction. Oh, absolutely. It's it's going to increase the chances of it happening and it's going to amplify whatever reaction happened. So there's definitely a mind connection. And we, we, I mean, we know the brain gut connection. And we know that, you know, thoughts can add to the stress load on the system and we feel in our gut. And who hasn't been you either studying for finals or you're waiting for, you know, a question, an answer to a question, and it's you're you're all tied up in knots because of it. So we know what our emotions and thoughts can do to our gut and those symptom sets. So it makes complete sense when you already have a functional gut condition with chronic symptoms where that worry and anxiety and stress can absolutely start to drive some of those symptoms, make them worse. Um, so um, I have my heart goes out to people who are so tied to their symptoms. And, ha- you know, I have so many people have to make all their own food. It is so time consuming. And as I'm looking at everything, when do you get out? When do you get out of the house? What do you do for fun? How do we get you out of this environment so you stop thinking about this? I want you to find something where you look up 15 minutes in and go, I haven't even thought about my gut stuff in 15 minutes. That's crazy because at home, that's all they're doing. And it's, and and who wouldn't? I mean, you know, again, with empathy, who wouldn't? They're having, it's it's a chronic 
symptoms said, it makes sense. So we ha we have to find those breaks. We have to find that joy in places that we can find it. And so, you know, whether it's book club, art class, pottery, something artistic, we've got to get out of the house and be able to, to get out of ourselves for just a few minutes and maybe connect with a different part of ourselves that isn't as worried. And I think in, in terms of healing, it's huge. It's really huge. I think meditation works beautifully to calm the gut. Biofeedback works amazing to calm the gut. I like Muse, which is a biofeedback. It's a band you wear and you plug in your headphones. And as you meditate, if you've calmed your brain waves down into this meditative state, you actually hear a calm ocean with um, ocean birds. And if you aren't, you hear more of a storm ocean. So you want to hear the birds. You know, so you, you get this biofeedback where you can start to really, you know, it's not just sitting in the corner and trying to be quiet, which is a beautiful practice for some people. But when you're, when people are really caught up in here, it's nice to be guided towards something and listened for cues as well. And so I think guided meditation, light yoga can be very helpful, but then a hobby, some sort of creative hobby that gets you out of the house and you can, you can escape for a little bit, I think could be really, really helpful. Coming from the food capital of Australia, living in Melbourne, uh, everything we do is around food, it seems, because we love our food. And so socialising for us Melburnians can often feel difficult because we do it over eating, which then becomes very, it feels impossible. It's not impossible, but it feels it. I really like your advice there to find hobbies um, like craft or pottery and I started to look for hobbies that didn't involve food and drink so that I could do them and not be as I felt that annoying person asking for all the you know <laughs> modifications to my diet but when I started to feel more confident with it then I started to go out to restaurants and cafes because I wanted to live the Melbourne experience and I felt that I then had the skill set to do that but I really agree with you, getting out of the house, getting out of your own head, particularly when we go into that anxiety spiral where, and this is what would happen to me, I'd try a new food, I'd have a big flare, I'd worry that I had gone to the start, I would then spiral, 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 spiral right down. I would then, you know, then the negative self-talk would commence. You're an idiot. Why did you do that? You knew you shouldn't have done that. You failed. You're such a failure. Life is not worth living, you know, really da -da 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 -da, down into the spiral. And I learned that one of the best things I could do was get up, go outside, take a walk, look at the birds in the trees, uh, listen to some music. I love to put on, I love music, so I'd put on a song that I love and I'd sing at the top of my lungs even if I didn't really feel very happy. I'd just be like, rah, or I'd put a really shouty song on so I could shout the lyrics. <laughs> very good for your vagus nerve, but yes. <laughs> and it is good for your vagus nerve. I was stimulating that without even knowing it. That's true. But and yes. then that became my practice. And, yeah. and without, without realising it, I was building better systems in my life to help me heal. Mm-hmm. And getting into nature and thinking about putting your feet in dirt. I mean, it's just, there's just something to, to for that reconnection. Um, we, can't, we can't look in, in chat rooms and um, worry all the time about what's happening. And I know, again, that's not easy for a lot of people to hear. And I, I do say that with a lot of respect for anybody that's in a, um, a dark place right now as they're trying to work through all of this. Um, but we, we've got to start to rebuild some of those outlets and those moments in the day that they can take because it's going to help in the long run. It's going to help heal them because we do need the entire system to help as we heal the gut. It's not just take these herbs, you're fixed, or take these antibiotics, you're fixed. We've got to get at this underlying piece. And if the system isn't happy, the gut's not happy. If the gut's not happy, the system isn't happy. Like we have to look at that as a whole and really use that and the more stress and anxiety and load that is created the more you're going to shift your gut in the wrong direction absolutely and this is a piece that i think needs to be reiterated all the time SIBO is not the primary condition it is a secondary condition it is literally a symptom 
of other another thing or things that have gone wrong in the system to allow the small intestine to accumulate bacteria. And it took me a really long time to get my head into this concept because after years and years and years of looking for a diagnosis and to be told you've got this condition called SIBO, I was so thrilled to have something to name it to then realise it really wasn't a thing as such. It was just a symptom of other things. I was like, oh, man, are you telling me I've got to keep looking? And uh, and that can be quite fatiguing. Um, any quick tips on, you know, how people can, if they haven't already started looking at the underlying cause or causes, how they can start that process? Yeah, yeah. Um... When you get a SIBO diagnosis, it's the start of the investigation. And I think what's really hard is that I see a lot of practitioners and a lot of patients, um, once they get that test, it's like, aha, that's it. That's the crux of everything. We treat this, you're good. And yet to me, we're seeing so many reoccurrent SIBO cases. So we have to start looking at this different. We have to, we have to realize that there's more to it than that. And that this is so counterintuitive to the body. We have forward moving matter. It moves through the small intestine quickly. Why would motility ever break down? It's, it's, we, that's not how the system works. So we have to look at it as, okay, it, it, this is a motility issue. There's a lot of symptoms that are going to come of it. We know how to help the system. We know how to address SIBO. But now that we know this, maybe using that as put our positive spin on it, this is the glimmer. We know we have this. We know what we can do about SIBO, but now we know this is a motility issue. What caused it? So as we look at this, a lot of people, and I've seen this too, a lot of people have all the labs and everything looks pretty good, but yet they're in so much disarray every single day with all of these symptoms. And so then they get the, the SIBO diagnosis and they're like, ah, I found it. This is it. We're going to address this. But now you know your issue is a motility issue. What's causing the motility issue? That's the question that has to be asked. What has interrupted the small intestine? What's going on there? And so that's the question. And we know that SIBO can cause an, an uncoupled bile and, and break down some fresh border enzymes and consume your B12. We have to monitor the patient to make sure nutritionally everything's stable. We've got to watch that. But we really have to investigate what else. And I think it's really important to do that. You know, I, I, have, I have a current patient with MS that had a SIBO test and we have to start looking at this and saying, is it a really good idea to dump a bunch of antibiotic after antibiotic rounds into a patient with MS? Is there another way we can go about this? Where are the symptoms at? How much do we have to treat here? We, we have to start looking at things like that. Um, I have another patient with celiac who has a positive test, but yet no SIBO symptoms. Everything could be explained because celiac is present and there's adrenal dysregulation and blood sugar dysregulation. And so we've got to do the foundational pieces first. If that, if the patient isn't presenting perfectly like SIBO and their doctors were probably running every test and finally said, Ooh, let's run a SIBO test. And, or, you know, she, I actually think she sought that out on her own for the SIBO test because she was having gut stuff. But once we talked through everything, I'm looking at it and I said, your, your, your celiac's never been fully addressed. That is first. We do that first. And two weeks in on just the diet, actually cleaning up gluten better and actually looking at the Cyrex cross reactivity test to see if there's other foods that she's bringing in that her body thinks are gluten because they have similar amino acid sequences. She had that test in her back pocket that she'd already done. We actually pulled those and she's like, I didn't even journal this week. I didn't have anything to report. So we have, we have to treat the person. And I look at that kind of patient and think, gosh, she could have started down antibiotic round after antibiotic round. It's possible that her test is a false positive because she's got celiac, which happens with an inflammatory bowel disease or celiac. It, it, it's possible. We need to treat the patient. And if she came to me with just chronic constipation, symptom sets all over the place and high methane SIBO, we'd be having a different conversation. But as I'm looking at everything, I'm like, you're eating garlic, onions, apples, like everything high that I would think someone would really react to in terms of SIBO doesn't really bloat a ton not constipated. And yet we know that we've got this other major thing that hasn't been addressed. Let's address this first. And it could have saved this person from going down a lot of treatment for this, you know? So we really have to look at that. I have, I have another patient that we 
She went through, um, she actually went um, strict BODMAPs, went through multiple rounds for SIBO, thought SIBO came back and she's like, let's go, let's treat this. And this is all before I met her. She pulled, added all the FODMAPs back in. I'm looking at everything. And we figured out it was a yeast issue. Her yeast issue was really never addressed. She had yeast markers in all these other labs and it's coming up with the same symptom set and put her on a yeast treatment and she's doing great. So we have to look at it. The SIBO test isn't the end. The SIBO test isn't the gold light to just start treating. We have to figure out what's going on with the patient. It really isn't the end. And looking at the person as a whole and a system as a whole rather than a few lab results I think is really important. Do you believe that we can treat SIBO solely with diet? Not not in the least. SIBO is a motility issue. And yes, we need to figure out the underlying factors that led to that. We have to reinstate motility, but SIBO with the diet specifically isn't going to be addressed fully. I've not seen that. I think we have to go beyond that. And I'm not saying that everyone has to go on herbals or antibiotics. We need to do some basic work with the person. We have to get back to, gosh, what did we do before SIBO tests? You know, we have to look at that. And we have peer-reviewed published studies that show us that probiotic use got us to a negative breath test and helped recover symptoms just as rifaximin did when when compared to that. So we we have to remember that. We don't want to jump the gun and actually treat, but it's, you know, we've got to do something to address the dysbiosis look at immunoregulatory support, look at some of those basics first before we jump in and say this has to be treated with an herbal. But just the diet isn't usually going to do it. And to me, if the diet does do it, it was probably IBS, not SIBO. And they're, they're, that I, I just wouldn't see that perfectly fixed SIBO. You know, SIBO is a motility issue and it's, that has to be addressed more. And just reinstating motility doesn't usually do it. Who should do the SIBO diets? Yeah, um, somebody that's having chronic symptoms across the day and they need to adjust their dietary intake to calm those symptoms down. That's what the diets are for. The diets don't treat SIBO. They don't starve out the bugs. We don't have to go uber restrictive. We really want to look at this case by case and simply start to alter things gently and slowly to see if we can get the symptoms set down. And when I work with people, I don't, you know, when I, when I walk them through this, I don't expect that while they have SIBO, they're not going to have any responses. You've got a functional gut condition, but if we can get those symptoms down to manageable, we're golden. Now we can treat and move forward, get all the other work done. It's never going to be perfect. Um, but I also don't want people to be nauseous all day have a, have a bloat that keeps them up at night, you know, a, a walking into a meal with a bloat of two and they come out the other side with a bloat of four or five, we're figuring out what triggered them. So it's not that they're sitting with that, but if they walk into with a two and come out with a three, got a functional gut disorder, you're probably going to see a little bit of a shift. When we eat, we see a little bit of distension here. Water comes into the bowels. We, that is all going to happen. So we kind of have to talk through what is normal. And I think it's so hard to remember what that is when you're dealing with a symptom set every single day to remember what normal little bit of reflexes a little bit of gases a little bit of like oh i ate too much or um you know i ate too much fat and had a little bit of fat you know just rich food didn't sit well with me i mean that can be somewhat normal to experience on a on a basis you know rare basis but i always feel like it's for, for a lot of people with SIBO, it's kind of IBS symptoms kind of ramping up to something that's a bit overwhelming where with SIBO, they go get help with it. It kind of comes back down to IBS symptoms and then we have to keep going until we can kind of calm things down a little bit more. I mean, as I look at the treatment progression, that's usually what I see. How do people find help if they're looking for help and they're feeling a bit lost and they think, I just don't know where to start? How do they start? How do they... How do they find someone just like you? <laughs> yeah, um, I would um, definitely go to whatever health provider that they're going to to see what kind of resources they have. I would look up FODMAPs um, or SIBO with a practitioner in their area, see if anything comes up. There is the SIBO. You know, we've, we've got some really great practitioners down in Portland. I work virtually as well, but I am one person and I cannot help everybody. I know that there is a, a Google Doc sheet that has practitioners that focus on SIBO. That's up and that's, I'm fairly sure Allison had that on her site. Do you remember that? 
I believe she did, but we could post the link to it um, on the on the notes here. Yeah, we'll have the, um, the links in the show yeah. notes for that. Yeah, what I would what I would say, you know, I, I want everyone to work with their practitioner. I, I respect all modalities out there. SIBO is a specialty. It's not just now we have this diagnosis. Here's here's the treatment. If that doesn't work, let's put you through another round of treatment. If that doesn't work, like you really need somebody that knows this inside and out. And I think that's where it gets a little difficult because that's not every practitioner in every area. And so I think it's a good idea to get a second opinion on treatment. And I think it's a really good idea and, and work with someone that speaks to you and it makes sense. And some people that's antibiotics, some people that's herbal, some people it's elemental, you know, we've got to, we've got to kind of present everything and what we're going to do and make sure that it's speaking to them. But yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I know. I think finding a practitioner that really resonates with you is important. And I love Maya naturopath. I just adore her because she was the first person in my whole journey, my quest to find what was wrong with me to say, I believe you when I told her how sick I felt that in itself, I'm sure, enabled me to start my healing process, to know someone, someone believed me. She gave me tough love when I needed it. She gave me warm love when I needed it. She was just really supportive. Is she the right person for everybody? No, she's not, but she was the right person for me. And so I think that if you're being treated by somebody and you're not quite sure about them or if you feel that perhaps you've reached the end of your time with them, it's fine to look for somebody new. And my naturopath isn't the be all and end all of all of my other conditions. I'm now looking into my hormones and my thyroid mm. and my adhesions because like you say, SIBO is often the beginning. It's definitely not the end. If, if I can add too, I think it's great to bring someone else onto the team. So you might love your general practitioner, but they might not know SIBO inside and out they're still your GP. They still have eyes on you to bring somebody else. And that's a specialist. And I'd say the same thing. There's, there's not a lot of practitioners that specialize in hormones. If you're looking at doing something with hormones, you go to a specialist. So it's really, you know, bring someone else onto your team and build that out and let your doctor know what you're doing. But it's, you know, it, it's really worth it because you have to build a team to support you. Absolutely. It really is your dream team and yeah. having that whole team of people. And like in business, I often thought mm -hmm. of it in business, you would go to somebody, you would go to an accountant or you would go to a financial planner or you'd, you know, go to whomever you needed, a marketer to help you with the specialty that you needed support with. So let's do that with our health. Let's get the right skilled people in our dream team, our health dream team that can fill a gap that is currently there that we that we need the support with. And like you said, Angela, I'm looking, I'm now on the hunt for a hormone specialist that knows all about female hormones and can work with, you know, someone that is uh, heading very, very quickly to their 40s. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. Um, but, you know, I need somebody that has th those skills and my naturopath will be part of the process, but she will, you know... It, she will probably not be the person doing the hormones because sure. she doesn't deal with that day in, day out. Right. Yeah. So I would seek out um, naturopathic care. I would seek out functional medicine in terms of a practitioner who's doing functional medicine for SIBO or a nutritionist that has a specialty, nutrition dietitian that has a specialty in SIBO. I think that all of those modalities can be helpful and go to the one that speaks most to you and they should have resources for you for the rest. So it would, wherever you're going to walk through that door, it's great. And also say, I need some support with diet. I need some support with this. And that practitioner should be able to assess that and get you to the right person. But don't feel like you have to completely put that team together yourself sometimes. You know, just find the one person that's really speaking to you. Start with them and we'll figure out what else needs to be done. And also coming to people like you and I who know people in the industry that we can often be a really great referral sources pointing people in the right direction. Angela Pfeiffer, it's been just gorgeous having you on back on the Healthy Gut podcast and we're here live in Seattle and we've got a gorgeous audience. It's really so wonderful for me as, you know, just a normal girl from Australia to be able to meet these people and, um, you know, 
just get to know fellow seaboers. And like we said earlier, getting out of the house and, and doing something different, I never thought two and a half years ago that I would be sitting here in Seattle right. doing a live podcast recording, meeting some gorgeous people mm-hmm. from all around the world talking about gut health. So thank you so much for coming back on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's show with Angela Pfeiffer coming to you from Seattle. I know I really enjoyed doing it in Seattle face-to-face with Angela and our gorgeous guests who came along to listen to uh, the podcast. Now, if you would like to get the show notes from today's episode or get any of the links, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash food fears. And don't forget, you can also find links to the US editions of the cookbooks on the page. And also there's a link to the survey for the SIBO snacks and the SIBO ready-made meals that I am currently developing just for you. And I would love to hear your feedback on what you need from snacks and meals to make your life with SIBO a little less daunting and to really help you go back to loving food. As you know, I love hearing your feedback. It really does mean the world to me, but it's really important for others looking for information on SIBO and gut health. So head to iTunes or the app you use to listen to the podcast. And it would be really awesome if you could leave a rating and also a review and just share something that you really enjoy about the show. And if you have a suggestion for a guest that you would like to hear me interview or perhaps a topic that you would like to see me cover, you can email me at info at thehealthygut.co. And the podcasts are also now available in YouTube. So if you like spending time in YouTube, as I do, and you'd like to listen to the podcasts there as well, we now have them available there. And make sure you come say hi to us on all our social media channels. We love connecting with you there. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Google Plus, and of course, YouTube. We're just under the name The Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, I'm joined by nutritionist Steph Lowe. And we talk about going low carb. It's something that I have definitely spent a bit of time doing over the last couple of years, particularly since discovering that I had SIBO. I find that going low carb really does help me. And Steph and I talk about you know, why it might be a good way of eating for many people, myself included. So I look forward to sharing that episode with you next week on the Healthy Gut Podcast. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. 